Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. 14-year-old Samantha has written me this question. For the past six years, I've tried, or I've had, a really close friend, and she is a Christian. She was raised in a liberal home, which is the opposite of how I am being raised, but we still connected spiritually. Two years ago, she started to avoid me and hung out with other friends that I really didn't like, but I never understood it until now. Apparently, she's bisexual, and she knows I don't support that lifestyle. She finally told me after two years of me not knowing. It's really hard because I have to make different decisions now because of this. I listen to your podcast all the time, and I really enjoy them. I always thought I had everything figured out when it came to talking to anyone in the LGBTQ community. But when it was my best friend I had to talk to, I didn't know what to say. I guess my question would be, how do I handle this? It's a lot more emotional than I thought it would ever would be, than I thought it ever would be. Thank you, Samantha. That's a great question from a young 14-year-old girl, probably a, I'd assume a freshman in high school right now. And we have several other questions I want to get to today. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And if you haven't downloaded our app yet, please do so. Two words in the App Store, cross-examined. We have a TV show as well on Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku, R-O-K-U. And uh, just go to NRB TV on Roku. That's National Religious Broadcasters. If you don't have either of those, you can watch it streaming on our app or on our website. All right, let's go back to Samantha's question. How can she... Uh, now speak to her friend who claims to be bisexual at 14, maybe she's 15 years old. First of all, let me say that this requires a private conversation. This is not something you're going to have in front of other people. And it's not something you should have over the internet or even over email. It's something I think you ought to sit down with people and uh, really talk about these issues. And it's not a soundbite topic. In fact, when you talk about issues like this, anything related to sexuality or the LGBTQ issues out there, most people have scores of objections that come into their, their modern mind about these issues. And you can't answer all of them immediately. That's why it's a difficult subject to talk about, because when you're talking about them, people have all these objections in their mind that might cause them to think that, well, you're some kind of bigot or you're some kind of homophobe or whatever that means. In fact, when people use those terms, you should always ask them, what do you mean by bigot? What do you mean by homophobe? What does that even mean? It sounds like a, a slur of some kind, and normally it is used that way. In any event, people have objections in their mind, and you can't uh, answer them or deal with them all at once. So you have to beg their patience. And I know this is an emotional issue for people, and for good reason, because many in today's culture think that their identity is tied up in their sexual desires and behavior. So what I might suggest, Samantha, is when you're talking to your friend about this, if she's open to talking about it, is say, I know this is an emotional issue, but 
Could we try and step back from emotion for a little while and try and look at this issue as rationally as possible? See if you can get agreement from that person. Can we just talk about rationality here? And let's see where the evidence leads. Because it could be emotional on both sides, whether you're for or against these behaviors. And it doesn't need to be. I think if you just talk about it rationally, I think you can reason through some of these issues. And as Greg Kokel points out in his book, Tactics, one of the first questions to ask somebody when you're dealing with a controversial issue like this is, do you consider yourself a tolerant person? Now, why do you ask that question? Because probably the person's going to say, yes, of course, of course I'm tolerant. And then you can say, great, because if I have an opinion that differs from yours, you'll tolerate it then, right? Because the only thing you can tolerate is something you disagree with. You don't tolerate things you agree with. You already agree with them. So always ask, do you consider yourself a tolerant person and get commitment from the other person? That way you can interact on this issue with a, without a lot of heat. Let's have light and not heat because heat doesn't get us anywhere. Now, think about this from a moral perspective. From a moral perspective, perspective, God's nature is the standard of morality. As we've talked about many times on this program, nothing is objectively right or wrong unless God exists. Otherwise, everything's just a matter of opinion. So that needs to be put on the table. When it comes to right and wrong behavior regarding any issue, if God doesn't exist, nothing's right or wrong. It's just human opinion because there's no purpose to life. There's no ultimate outcome. There's no standard outside of ourselves. When I say there's no ultimate outcome, I mean, there's, we're ultimately going to go to heat death. There's, so there, there's no ultimate purpose to the universe, which means there's no ultimate purpose to life, which means there's no ultimate right or wrong way to live it. In fact, from a, a pragmatic perspective, you need to know God's purposes in order to understand why he say deems a particular behavior right or wrong. You need to know God's purpose for life to understand why he's for or against any behavior, whether it's heterosexual behavior or homosexual behavior. You've got to know the purpose of life. Just as we've talked about before, you wouldn't know from a pragmatic perspective in a football game that your quarterback throwing a touchdown was better than your quarterback throwing an interception unless you knew the purpose of the game. That's the only way you could know the touchdown was better than an interception. The same thing is true in life. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? If there's no purpose to life, there's no right or wrong way to live it. If there's no God, there's no objective right or wrong way to live anything. We're just overgrown germs. And look, even atheists admit this. Richard Dawkins has famously said that there is no good or evil. There is no real right or wrong. We just dance to our DNA. Well, if we're just dancing to our DNA and there is no right or wrong, good or evil, there are no human rights. Nothing's ultimately right or wrong. Of course, Dawkins doesn't really live that way. He understands that he has a right to life. He, under, he, has, he has certain moral uh, precepts or moral principles that he thinks are right. Like, you ought not force your religion on your children. That's one of the things he would say you should not do. Well, if there's no God, there's, that's not right or wrong. It's just a matter of opinion. But what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Jesus, I think, answers that question in John 17, 3, where he says, this is eternal life. That they, meaning the people Jesus is praying for in this prayer to the Father in John 17, 3, which would be us, that they know you. God the Father and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
In other words, the purpose of life is to know God, not just intellectually. Even the demons know that God exists, according to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called, yeah, you guessed it, James. Even the demons know that God exists, but they don't trust in him. So the purpose is to know God relationally, not just intellectually, to trust in what Christ has done for you and then to make him known. God's purpose for us is to be imagers of him. He made us in his image. Now, it doesn't mean you look like God because God's an immaterial being. It means you're a person like God. You have mind, emotion, and will, and you can act like God in the sense that you can create, that you can cultivate, that you can be his ambassador here on earth. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 5, that when you become a Christian, you've become an ambassador for God. As if God is making his appeal through you, you're put on this earth to know God and to make him known, to be an ambassador for him, to be an imager of him and how you behave affects that. And this behavior uh, also, or our behavior, how, how we act affects our ability to be imagers of God. So sexual behavior is important. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about why does God, why does he approve of heterosexual behavior within marriage, but not homosexual behavior? And when we come back, we'll talk about it. And I want to point out that this Monday night in uh, Huntsville, Texas, I'll be at Sam Houston State University with my friend, the great Tim Ramsey. He's the host there, and uh, it's open to the public. You can go to our website, crossexamine.org. And uh, join us there, see where it is, or you can also watch it streaming live, 7.30 Eastern Time, 6.30 Central. We're back in two minutes, don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. That event at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas will be in the Loman Student Center, which is in Huntsville, Texas, on the campus of Sam Houston State. As I say, it's 6.30 p.m. Central. Uh, we're doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And, of course, there's always time for Q&A. We will also stream it, at least we always intend to, if the Internet works. So you can watch it live. That is this Monday night, February 17th. Then next week, I'm doing a lot in uh, Nebraska with my, my friend Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries. We're going to do Carney E. Free Church uh, Sunday morning, both services. And then on Monday night, University of Nebraska at Kearney. Tuesday night, University of Nebraska at Lincoln. And then Wednesday night, University of Nebraska at Omaha. And so if you would pray, my voice would hold out. It kind of just faded in my last event at Ohio State. So uh, Elisa Childers filled in for me last week here, nobly, I might add, along with Mike Winger. But I pray for those events. And if you're anywhere in that area, Nebraska, I'd love to see at any of those events. They're all free. And then the following Saturday, the 29th, along with a bunch of folks from Stand to Reason, a sister ministry to ours, Rethink in Dallas. Actually, it starts the 28th, Thursday night, the 20, I'm sorry, Friday night, the 28th. And then it's a leap year, ladies and gentlemen. We're doing Friday, the 29th of February, right there, Rethink Dallas. I'll be there with Greg Kokel and Jay Warner Wallace and many others. 
So I hope to see you guys out there. Let's go back to our issue. The question from Samantha, how do I interact with my bisexual friend? And uh, I recommended that you sit down with the individual and spend some time talking through the issues. This is not a soundbite issue. And so we said that one of the things you need to discover in order to know whether anything is right or wrong is if God exists, that's the only way something could be right or wrong. And if he does exist, what does he want us to do? What's the purpose of life to know him and to make him known? We're imagers of God. One of the things we can do as an imager is to create like God and God orders us to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's one thing that obviously can't be done in a same sex relationship. Marriage is also an illustration of our union with God. Now, you always have to say, well, I'm not here to offend anybody. Well, I'm just here to state facts. Okay. You know, some people may not be able to handle the facts. I get it. But here's, here are the facts. Same-sex marriage cannot do what natural marriage does. It can't create children. It just can't. Oh, we can get all sorts of uh, biological um, help. And yeah, well, yeah, you could, you could take uh, extraordinary measures to have children without really having a mother or without really having a father in the home. But as study after study shows, what's best for children is a biological mother and father in the home. Uh, there's not just parenting, there's mothering and fathering. So if you want what's best for children, you want to put them in a home with a biological mother and father. Sometimes that doesn't work out, we understand, but that's what's best for children. The second thing that same-sex marriage can't do that natural marriage does with regard to the purpose of life is it same-sex marriage generally does not develop your character by forcing you to sacrifice your desires for that of your spouse. You say, what do you mean by that, Frank? Come on. That's a that's an overstated statement. No, I don't think it is. And let me explain why. Gary Thomas wrote a famous book on marriage. It's called Sacred Marriage. And the subtitle of the book, I think, is brilliant. And it gets right to the point of the book. Here's the subtitle of Gary Thomas's book, Sacred Marriage. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy. Gee, what do you mean by that? Do you realize that we get two broken people in a relationship? There's always going to be trouble, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual. There's going to be trouble. There are broken people. We're all broken people, regardless of how we identify sexually. Now, how does same sex, or I should say natural marriage, marriage between a man and a woman, how does that force you to sacrifice your desires for that of your spouse more so than say a same-sex marriage would. I write this in the book, correct, not politically correct, how same-sex marriage hurts everyone. That book can get you fired, ladies and gentlemen. You know that story. If you, if you don't know that story, go to crossexamine.org and in the search bar, type in sex at work. Do not Google that, okay? Go to crossexamine.org and only put that in the search engine there. You'll see the article about me getting fired for writing that book. But that's a whole other thing I don't have time to get into here. But here's what I say in the book, correct, not politically correct. I say one of the least mentioned aspects of this debate, what debate? The debate over same-sex marriage is how men and women complement one another. Each sex balances and moderates the other by providing what's lacking in the other. However, in same-sex relationships, the pairing of identicals, in other words, men with men and women with women, propels them to extremes, not balance. 
Lesbians tend to push one another to emotional extremes as evidenced by the intense demands they often put on one another. But male homosexuals experience the most damaging effects of imbalance. Instead of the sex drive of the man being balanced by the emotional needs of the woman, male homosexuals reinforce and amplify the sex drive of one another. That's why their behavior often becomes compulsive to the point of explosive promiscuity. Anywhere from 21 to 43% of homosexual men have had several hundred sexual partners, unquote. Now, all this is documented in this book, Correct, Not Politically Correct. Now, I realize that some people won't like that. Look, it, those are just the facts. That's what the studies show, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just pointing out that this, and it makes sense that this would happen because the male libido is not balanced by the emotional needs of the woman in a same-sex relationship. And since we're on radio here and there are children listening, that's as far as I'm going to take it. But if you get the book, you can see what I mean by that. You can go a little further in it. And so there's one of the, that's one of the reasons that a same-sex relationship cannot do what an opposite-sex relationship does with regard to our sanctification. If God not only wants us to create, and he does, but he also wants us to become more like Jesus, and he does, a opposite-sex marriage, a natural marriage, will tend to do that better than a same-sex marriage, even if you take the sexual aspects out of it, because it's forcing you to actually deal with someone who it doesn't have the same wiring you have. And that forces you to become, if you're going to ensure that your marriage survives and thrives, it's going to force you to become more like Jesus rather than more selfish. It's not going to amplify your, um, your tendencies. It's going to tend to mollify your tendencies because you have to adapt to the other person. Now, here's some questions you can ask your friend, Samantha. And we're talking about a question Samantha has written me, 14-year-old young woman who is uh, trying to reach a friend of hers that claims to be bisexual. Here are some questions you can ask. Question, if God is really against same-sex behavior, would you agree with him? Just ask that question. If God is really against same-sex behavior, would you agree with him? You might also ask if God is really for same-sex behavior, would you agree with him? Well, of course, if it's God, right, if God created us and he's the standard of good, we should line up what we want with what he wants, with his will, not our will. So if God is really against same sex behavior, would you would you agree with him? I think quite often that question is never asked. And uh, people are splitting denominations now over this. Apparently, the United Methodists are splitting over this. I wonder if the conservative groups in the United Methodists have ever asked the liberal groups in the United Methodists this question. If God is really against same-sex behavior, would you agree with him? Or you can answer, answer, ask it a different way. If God really wanted you to refrain from same-sex same same behavior, would you seek to refrain from same-sex behavior? Ask the question. Because it might be, no matter what the evidence shows, they're going to put their sexual desires over whatever God wants. Well, if that's the case, we have a completely different problem here. It's not a matter of evidence. It's not a matter of logic. It's not a matter of reason. It's a matter of the will. And God gives us free will. Why does he give us free will? Because this is a world that is a moral world, and God wants us to have the capacity to love. 
And the only way we can have the capacity to love is if we do have free will. It means, though, we also have the capacity to do evil. And he gives us that ability because without that ability, we can't love. We have to have free will to love. And here's one thing a sovereign God can't do. He can't violate himself. He can't do logically impossible things. And his nature is the ground of all logic. He can't force free creatures to do what he wants because then they wouldn't be free. Oh, sure. He could force us to do what he wants, but he'd have to take our free will away to do it. Another question you can ask, if God revealed his laws to protect us and to give us the best chance of knowing and enjoying him and his creation forever, would you follow those laws? If God revealed his laws to protect us and to give us the best chance of knowing and enjoying him and his creation forever, would you follow those laws? If a man sacrificed himself to take a bullet meant for you, would you honor his dying request to love him and others? Because that's what Jesus did. If a man sacrificed himself to take punishment meant for you, would you honor his dying request to love him and others? Maybe the answer is no. Okay. You're being honest then. But I think you're on very dangerous ground. It's never a good thing to disagree with Jesus. Now, we're not done with Samantha here, but Paula writes a question similar to Samantha's, and we can answer both as we continue. Paula writes, hi, Frank. My name is Paula. I'm now a born again Christian for almost nine years. I'm 56 years old. I have a long story, but I won't tell it now. I have several questions. First, I'm having a really hard time to find a sound biblical church. So many are now of are now of accepting homosexuality and they are just more entertaining the sheep. My second is when I talk to uh, other Christians and ask them about their views on homosexuality, some say, Oh, God is a God of love. So how do we answer that question? Well, I think again, borrowing from Greg's book tactics, Greg Kokel's book. The first question you want to ask is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by love? Because Paula, I think you've hit on the center of this debate. Who isn't for love? Everyone's for love. Everybody should be for love. The question is, what do you mean by love? Because we never stop to really define what love is. We assume that love always means approval. That love... If you love somebody, you're going to approve of everything they want to do. Is that true? Is that what love is? When we come back, we're going to talk about it. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. Don't forget our YouTube channel, friends. It's growing, and we've got about 700 short videos on there from the college campus. So check that out as well, the Cross-Examined YouTube channel. Back in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 
Join our online community to have great conversations, grow in your knowledge of God, and become a better defender of the Christian faith. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or cross-examine in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at crossexamined.org. The key to this entire debate, what is love? What debate? We're talking about uh, talking to a friends of ours that are or identify as LGBTQ, and they're going to say, look, this is just all about love. Well, I think we need to stop and say, what do you mean by love? What is love? I think one of the key mistakes people make on this issue is assuming that love requires approval. You know, if you loved me, you'd approve of what I want to do. But think about this. If love required approval or agreement, then LGBTQ advocates would not be loving toward Christians who take an orthodox view of homosexual behavior. I mean, one can love someone while they disagree with their behavior. I mean, you, you, you love people right now with whom you disagree. In fact, in order to love them, sometimes you have to disagree with their behavior. And look, every parent knows this. If a parent agrees with, tolerates, or celebrates everything his or her child wants to do, that parent is not loving. That parent is unloving because love seeks what's best for the loved one. Love requires that we stand for truth and God's will because look, love doesn't exist if God exists. It doesn't. It's just your opinion. God is love. So the only way love can exist is if God exists. So love requires that we stand for truth and God's will, which is exactly what Jesus did, even though it got him killed. And we stand against behaviors that are harmful to the loved one or to others. You know, um, my son is about to get married uh, this uh, March. My oldest son, my second son is already married. We have three sons. And um, he hasn't picked this passage for his wedding, but most people do pick 1 Corinthians 13 for the wedding. And uh, you know that famous passage about what love is. First of all, if you read that passage, we don't have time to do it now. If you read that passage, there's not a feeling in the passage. Love is all action. And one of the things that Paul says about love, this is in verse six of first Corinthians 13, it says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Marinate on that for a second. Love always protects. How do you protect people? You stand in the way of what they want to do. If what they want to do is going to be harmful to them or others, you stand in the way of what they want to do if something is going to take them further away from the knowledge of Jesus, because that's why we're all here to know Jesus and to make him known. So we have to, we actually have to tactfully tell them the truth, even if they're going to persecute you for it, because your number one obligation is to God. And because you are obligated to God, you know that people are made in his image and that's why they're so valuable. That's why you stand for them by sometimes standing against what they want to do. And look, your parents did that to you. They stood in, in the way, hopefully, of bad things you wanted to do. So 
ask the question, what do you mean by love? And then how did you come to that conclusion that that is the definition of love? Another question you might ask, by what standard are you judging the Bible wrong and your position right? Because if there's no God, then again, there's nothing right or wrong. Or you can ask the question, by what standard are you judging Jesus wrong and your position right? Oh, Jesus never spoke about same-sex marriage or homosexuality. No, he actually did. <laughs> In Mark chapter 7, when he talks about sexual immorality makes you unclean. Sexual immorality in his day meant any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. That included all sorts of sexual activity, including homosexuality and adultery and fornication and bestiality and rape. All that was included in that category. Yeah, he didn't mention, at least he's not recorded mentioning using the word homosexual or referring to it specifically, but he also didn't refer to felony home invasion. Yet he talked about the category known as theft, which covers felony home invasion. He's against it. Yeah, he didn't mention homosexuality directly, but he talked about the category sexual immorality, which includes homosexuality and other aberrant sexual behaviors, according to what the Old Testament said. And Jesus reaffirmed that in the New Testament. And of course, the other apostles did as well. Now, as Christians, we believe that the New Testament is our standard for moral behavior and some of the things spoken of in the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament, and that is our standard. But yet, you don't even need um, the Bible to know right, for, right from wrong on these issues. In fact, natural law and the Bible come from the same source, God. So we should expect that they would agree. And from a design and procreation perspective, the combat compatibility of men and women and the incap incompatibility of the same sexes is undeniable. Well, people do deny it now, but really, it's undeniable. Men and women are designed for one another to procreate and to nurture children. And that's why, by the way, the, the government's involved in marriage. The government is not involved in marriage to recognize romantic affinities. The government doesn't care if you love Mary or if Bill loves Steve or if John loves Julie. That's not why the government's involved in marriage, at least traditionally. The reason the government's involved in marriage is to, to perpetuate and stabilize society. And that's what opposite sex couples do. They perpetuate and stabilize society. Same sex couples don't have that capacity. Look, all people are equal, but not all behaviors are equal. In fact, that's why we have laws because it treats, it's supposed to anyway, treat all people equally, but not all their behaviors equally. If all behaviors were equal, we'd have no laws. You could do whatever you want. No, the laws are there and the law is a great teacher. Many people think whatever is legal is moral and whatever is illegal is immoral. We have an entire book on this called Legislating Morality. But the bottom line here is, is that behaviors are not the same. People are the same. They're made in the image of God and everybody deserves respect regardless of how they identify. But not everything they do is equal. And look, folks on the other side of this debate, the LGBTQ activists will think that certain behaviors that I might exhibit or other people who agree with me might exhibit, they don't think they're the same. They call us all sorts of names because they think our behavior is something they disagree with. Okay, fair enough. You can disagree with it, but we should treat, treat one another with respect because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. 
Now, what about the the born that way argument? We have to touch on that here for just a minute because um, some people are claiming, look, God designed me with these desires. Therefore, I should follow these desires. Well, there's a number of reasons the argument doesn't work. First of all, the research does not show a strong genetic component to desires. It's not nature, but more nurture or environment that is more responsible for desires. And there's a brand new study that came out of Harvard and MIT that uh, actually studied almost half a million individuals from the United States and from the United Kingdom. And there's a summary of this on public discourse. The title of it is Born That Way, No More, The New Science of Sexual Orientation. Born That Way, No More, The New Science of Sexual Orientation. By the way, we've been trying to put the transcripts of these of these podcasts up on the website. So we will include that link and it might take us a few days to get the transcript up, but we'll include the link to this article if you're interested in this. So the born that way argument doesn't really work from a scientific perspective, but let's assume it's true. Let's assume that there is a, a, a strong genetic component to same sex attractions. Does that justify actions? No, because attractions don't necessarily justify actions. If they did, then all sin would be justified because we all have attractions that we ought not act on. In fact, somebody could make the claim, look, I was just born with the anti-gay gene. So that's why I'm against same sex behavior. Or someone could even make the further claim, I'm born with the anti-gay gene. So that makes gay bashing okay for me. No, it doesn't. Even if that were true, that wouldn't make you should act that way. People have desires to do all sorts of sinful things. That's our struggle. That's all of our struggle, regardless of, regardless of how we identify. I'm going through puberty, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry. Regardless of how, we, of how we identify sexually, we're all sinners. We're all fallen. Now, if someone asserts that God designed their desires, then they must admit that God designed their bodies. So why would you follow the design of your desires rather than the design of your body? If you don't follow the design of your desires, that can be uncomfortable. But if you don't follow the design of your body, that can be fatal. So if you're going to make a design argument that God designed me this way. Look, it's much more obvious that God designed your body than he designed your desires. Your desires can be can be impacted, as this study shows, by so many other factors. Many of them are just environment. It's more nurture than it is nature. But look, you don't follow your if you don't follow the design of your body, you can actually kill yourself. And tragically, that's been the result for many people that have gotten involved in illicit sexual behavior. So I know it's a sensitive issue, but I think when you look at the evidence and you take time to sit down with people and go through the evidence and ask questions rather than make so many statements, I think people can really see that there's reasons why God is for certain sexual behaviors and against others. And look, we're either going to follow God or we're not. And you have the free will not to. If you don't want to, that's your call. But again, I think the key to this entire debate is, is being very clear about what the definition of love is. Love doesn't necessarily mean approval. In fact, Dr. Michael Brown and myself had a debate a couple of years ago at Southern Evangelical Seminary. I think you can find it online uh, on YouTube. It had to do, I'm trying to remember the exact title of the debate, but it went something like, does love require affirmation? And we were debating uh, two folks who were same-sex marriage advocates. 
In fact, one of them was a lesbian and the other gentleman was not. Uh, he was a he was a, a heterosexual man, but he was taking the position that um, if you're against same sex relationships, you're somehow a bigot. And uh, anyway, we, we had a conversation over this. And at one point I asked the question of the other side, do you love us? And they said, yes. And I said, do you affirm our position? Do you approve of our position? No. I said, well, you just lost the debate then because the entire debate is around that question. Can you be loving and not approve what someone wants to do? And we're saying the answer is yes. You're saying the answer is no, yet you're claiming to love us, yet you don't approve what we do. Of course, sometimes, in fact, many times, you need to disapprove of what a loved one wants to do. You have to, otherwise you're not loving, you're unloving. You're allowing them to go down a road that's going to hurt them and hurt others. And that's not loving, that's unloving. All right, we have several more questions. In fact, I have, uh, I don't know if I can't get to all of them, but I'm going to try and get to your questions. And if you want to try and uh, send me a question, send it to hello at crossexamined.org. Hello at crossexamined.org. As I say, I can't get to all of them, but I try and get to as many as I can. And the next segment, we'll go through some more questions. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Website is crossexamined.org. Back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation. 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. We're not shying away from any of the tough issues, ladies and gentlemen. Here's what Walker writes. My Christian friends are having a debate on the sociably acceptable use of marijuana. Half are for it and the other others are against it. Personally, I've been against it my whole life since it was illegal. Now that it's becoming more legal in some states, I'm more open-minded to it. However, the question that I cannot escape is, can smoking marijuana be moral? Well, obviously, it depends on in what context. If it's medical, sure, it can be moral. But for recreational use, I don't think so. Why? Because the whole purpose of recreational marijuana is to inebriate yourself. That's not the whole purpose of drinking alcohol. You can have a glass of wine with, which complements food and not get inebriated. In fact, Jesus turned water into wine. But you can't smoke marijuana and not get inebriated because that's the purpose of smoking marijuana. But alcohol is a different thing. Now, in both cases, drunkenness is a sin or inebriation is a sin. But you're going right to inebriation when it comes to marijuana. You're not doing it when it necessarily, you're not necessarily doing it when it comes to alcohol. Now, if you go past uh, just having a glass of wine and you become inebriated, then that would be immoral according to the scriptures. And I think according to good common sense as well. All right. Uh, that was easy. That's what Walker writes in. Uh, hopefully you agree. Uh, another gentleman writes in and says uh, that he is. Here's the question. It's a long email, but I'm just going to get to the question. Uh, during the last few lesson plans, I see a population in Israel, Northern Kingdom and Judah of the South that seems to parallel modern American society, uh, which is the idolism of self which is drawing our teens and college kids away from the basics of God or the basics of why God. So here's my question. Are there parallels? 
of 900 to 600 or so BC to current youth society that I can make clear as a warning to our students? And if so, what are the ax marks that we can make in the coffin of a worldview uh, that's an anti-biblical worldview? Um, and my recommendation to you is get Lennox's book on Daniel, Daniel Against the Flow. And we have a DVD series on that as well, because I taught on uh, Daniel four or five years ago from our TV show. And yes, there are a lot of parallels between, say, Judah and prior to that, Israel, uh, getting to such a degraded moral state that there was a judgment. And uh, as you know, uh, Israel fell in 722 BC and uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, fell in 586 BC. And could that happen in America? Now, I'm not saying that there's a direct parallel here that God has a revealed plan for America. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that there could be judgment coming just basically because we continue to push away. We push God away and we we want to make our own ways the ways of the country rather than God's ways. We want to create our own moral standard rather than adhere to God's moral standard. And you've probably heard this before, but new news is just old news happening to new people. That's what's going on here. In fact, there's a cycle in judges where people are prosperous and they forget about God and they sin. And then there's judgment and then they repent and then they come back to God and they lead, they're led back to prosperity and the cycle continues. They get real fat, meaning... They get real prosperous and they forget about God and they start doing things their old way. And that leads ultimately to a judgment, uh, leads to a, a fall of society and they repent and come back. We don't want that to happen here. We don't want to be judged. We want to do things God's way. And if we don't, just the natural order of things is ultimately things are going to degrade now, imagine if you could have the wisdom of thousands of years at a young age. Well, you can. It's called the Bible. <laughs> In fact, the whole book of Proverbs is about teaching young people the ways of wisdom. So I encourage you, I don't I didn't write the man's name down who wrote this in, but I encourage you to get John Lennox's book or get our DVD set and teach people that if you just talk through the Proverbs, that would be helpful. In fact, we have a series on Proverbs as well. All right. Another question uh, from Christian. This comes, uh, I just really want to thank you for what you do. And it's taken me in the path of discovering the truths about Christianity and how to defend the faith. I wanted to ask you how to reply to this exchange of comments on an atheist Facebook page from an agnostic atheist. He asked me about the evidence of the existence of God. And I gave him the answers found in cross-examined app, the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments. And here are his responses. Um, and here I thought you were bringing something new, the atheist said, the cosmological argument. He said that cause can be God or something else that we have yet to discover. God is just a convenient answer. Well, my question back to this individual would be, this atheist would be, what other cause could it be? Because if space-time and matter had a beginning, whatever created space-time and matter can't be made of space-time and matter. In other words, the cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, uh, 
Also intelligent, because in order to choose to create, you have to have a mind, you have to make a choice. Now, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, that's not nature. That's an intelligent being. In fact, if all nature had a beginning, which is what the evidence shows that even atheists are admitting, the cause must be beyond nature. In fact, it reminds me of a, a situation I had at the University of Michigan a number of years ago. An atheist got up to the microphone after I'd gone through the cosmological argument and said, uh, well, look, if we just give... Si he said, Frank, that's a God of the gaps argument. If we give science more time... We're going to figure out a natural cause for this. I said, his name was John. I said, John, you're never going to find a natural cause for all of nature. He said, no, Frank, if we give science more time, we'll find a natural cause for all of nature. I said, it's impossible, John. You can have all the time in the world. You're never going to find a natural cause for all of nature. And he consisted. He said that we would. And I said, first of all, John, when you say that give science more time, we'll find a natural cause. I said, that sounds a lot like faith. And it is. Look, we haven't found it yet. We're going to find it. That's a natural law of the, ga uh, the gaps argument, okay? <laughs> it's natural law of the gaps, a nature of the gaps argument. But secondly, it's impossible in principle to find a natural cause for all of nature. Because if nature truly had a beginning, and that's what the evidence shows, whatever created nature must transcend nature. It must be beyond nature. It must be something supernature. I said to him, to say, if I were to say to you, if you would just give me more time, uh, I could find a natural... Well, let me back up. I said, you saying that if you just give me more time, I'm going to find a natural cause for all of nature would be like me saying, if you just give me more time, I'm going to figure out that I gave birth to my own mother. No, there's no way in principle that could happen. My mother had to exist prior to me existing. I can't be the cause of my mother. Likewise, there has to be something beyond nature that brought nature into existence. You can't have a natural cause if nature didn't exist. The cause must at least pre-exist or be simultaneous with the effect. So you have to have some other comeback other than it's just a convenient answer. No, the evidence, it's not a God of the gaps argument. The evidence is pointing toward a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause. It's not a gap in our knowledge. That evidence points to that kind of cause. Another argument this gentleman uh, responded to is the teleological argument. This atheist agnostic said, have you ever considered or this is what the atheist said to the teleological argument. Have you ever considered it being more mere coincidence that earth became habitable by other means? God is just a convenient answer. Well, again, the question is, what do you mean by coincidence? Is coincidence a cause? Just like chance, is chance a cause? No, chance is a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. Chance is not a cause. When scientists use the word chance, you know what they really mean? We don't know. Because chance isn't a cause, coincidence isn't a cause. It's like Richard Dawkins using the word luck in his book, The God Delusion, that we just got here by luck. This is a scientist using luck. Luck is not a cause. Luck is, is an expression of ignorance about the cause. And it's not just the earth is inhabitable. The argument from fine-tuning says that there wouldn't even be a universe unless the initial conditions were fine-tuned. Forget about a habitable Earth. That's down the road. You wouldn't even have a universe. The universe would have collapsed back on, on itself, according to Stephen Hawking. 
if the expansion rate wasn't fine-tuned to an incredible degree. And, and, and there's no evolutionary kind of answer you can give to this, because the expansion rate did not evolve to a particular point. The expansion rate started there. So it seems to me the same being that created space, time, and matter is the same being that fine-tuned the expansion rate to precisely what it needed to be for us to be here. So it's not just about a habitable Earth. It's about having any universe at all that could even have an Earth. Now, there are other arguments you can give for a habitable Earth, but before you ever get to an Earth, you need a universe, and the universe itself from the very beginning appears to be designed. So just brushing that off as if a mere coincidence could explain the Earth habitable does not do justice to the argument. Coincidence is not a cause. Then he talks about the moral argument, and he has problems with the moral argument. And if I had time, I'd read through what he said, but I don't. <laughs> so next week, we'll come back and do some more of these questions. And in the meantime, I want to remind you that Monday night, I'm going to be at, Lord willing, as James says, don't assume you're going to be anywhere, Lord willing. Uh, I'm going to be at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. That's a little over an hour north of Houston. It's open to the public. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. It starts at, at 6.30 Central, 7.30 Eastern. For those of you that are not in that area, you can see it streamed live on our website, also our YouTube channel and Facebook pages. We'll try and stream it there. And of those of you who have seen the presentation before and go, well, I've seen it before, just jump to the Q&A. The Q&A will start about an hour and a half in, and you can... Uh, check that out as well. And then the following week, I'm going to be out in Nebraska at several colleges, including the University of Nebraska at Kearney, Lincoln, and Omaha. Check all that out and check out our website, crossexamine.org. And I'll see you here next week. By the way, we got some new online courses, actually one on homosexuality in the Bible with Sean McDowell. Check out online courses at crossexamine.org. See you next week, friends. God bless. If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.